0: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, good evening to all of you and uh, welcome to this uh, evening event with the title Food as a Catalyst for Change. My name is Turin Trigista, and I'm the Deputy Director at the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, also known as Prio. And Prio is a research institute that conducts research on the conditions for peaceful relations between states, groups And people. And we seek to understand the processes that bring societies together or split them apart. So, where does food fit into this picture? Well, what we know from studying peace processes, for instance, is that food often plays an important role when peace facilitators and mediators are bringing conflict parties together. To meet and share a meal can serve as an important first confidence-building measure. Sharing a meal is sharing humanity. Still, to my knowledge, I don't think that we have ever organized an event like this before focusing on the role of food as a cat- catalyst for change. So I'm therefore very, very excited about today's event. In our research efforts, we pursue interdisciplinarity and innovation and are increasingly striving to build bridges to people with other approaches to how peace and conflict can be studied and explained. That is also why we, a couple of years back, established the Prio Center on Culture and Violent Conflict. This center is a hub for research on culture and violent conflict. By initiating joint research projects and hosting seminars and workshops, bringing together academics, practitioners in the cultural field. Fitting nicely within its scope of activities, tonight's event is thus hosted by the Prio Center on Culture and Violent Conflict in collaboration with photographer Nancy Bundt and the United States Embassy here in Norway. So without further ado, I will now give the floor to Ethan Tidwell, who is a political officer at the U.S. Embassy and someone who is very much inspired by food and likes to learn about new cultures through culinary diplomacy exciting, isn't it? He will give us some introductory remarks and also introduce today's guest speaker later on. So, Ethan, please, uh, the floor is yours.
1: Torin, thank you so much. The U.S. Embassy in Oslo um, is very pleased uh, to support this evening's uh, lecture with Sean Sherman. And um, I'm personally very pleased um, to be here and to attend Sean's uh, lecture as well. Um, as you mentioned, food is a passion of mine, um, uh, food diplomacy. Um, and it's, it's, it's intrigued me for a while. So when I heard about the efforts that Sean is doing here, um, it, it uh, appealed to me on a professional level, but also also very much on a, on a personal level um, because it in, in, uh, involves so many issues that i 'm passionate about identity, food, uh, social change, and, and human rights, um, mostly food let 's say <laughs> uh, i 'm here i 'm um, here as a political officer with u s embassy i 'm um, here because I work on human rights and I cover the human rights portfolio at the u s embassy. Uh, I have a specific focus as well on indigenous rights. Um, in that role I actually had the opportunity uh, to take a trip up to Sapmi in uh, the high north and I traveled um, uh, to meet with many uh, Sami community leaders there um, and uh, they demonstrated to me the very clear link that exists um, between food and identity, between food and culture and identity. Food culture and food habits are so closely linked uh, to individual identity and to group identity and uh, Food and culture also links directly to the land. Um, there's so many reminders of how um, food and uh, the preparation of food and the bringing of food together is tied intricately to the land. Contacts, um, the, my Sami contacts told me that without reindeer herding grounds and access to the land that they need, there would not be the Sami culture that we know today and the Sami people as we know it today. It's clear the connection between food and identity, but also the connection um, between identity and human rights. And that's something that's intrigued me for a while. The United States and Norway both put human rights at the forefront of our foreign policy agendas. Uh, one of the reasons we do that is because we believe, that, uh, we believe in the premise that people whose rights are respected and protected, um, people whose personhood is acknowledged, uh, will end up leading to greater security, uh, greater prosperity and well-being. Which rights and freedoms are we talking about here? Um, uh, the rights and freedoms that immediately come to mind are, are the rights of expression, the freedom of expression and the freedom of assembly, uh, freedom, to, uh, religious freedom, also the right to self-determination, um, and the right to culture, and the right to practice your culture. Um, all of these are, uh, once again, intricately linked with identity. Respecting those rights leads to inclusion and one of the concepts uh, that I look at a lot uh, as a human rights officer is the concept of inclusion in society um, and uh, connect that with the, with the concept of othering. Um, othering is the idea of highlighting and demonizing the differences that exist between people especially, especially in minority populations. Um, Authoritarian regimes often use othering um, when they want to consolidate their power and when they want to silence criticism by highlighting the differences between people, putting people on the outside, putting people on the fringes and making them the other. The people outside the system, those outside the system, aren't motivated to support a system that places them there. In fact, they're motivated to actively and passively fight against that system. Uh, Repression of individual and group rights Pushes, uh, pushes people to the fringes of society, and it pushes people underground. The absence of acceptance weakens social cohesion and alienates citizens. Uh, it inhibits progress. It brings about resentment. This has negative impacts on the individual that's been othered or that's been pushed to the outside. But it also has um, negative impacts to society, a huge negative impact on the economy, um, on national and global security. And that's why these issues are important to the United States government. That's why these issues are important to Norway. When we talk about inclusion... um, we also talk, uh, we can't ignore the concept of food. And Torun uh, demonstrated very clearly that food has been used um, historically when it comes to bringing people together, fomenting peace, as it were. When all members of society are included and brought together and protected by society, um, we, we reap the rich rewards. Uh, that's one of the reasons that we believe that the work that Sean Sherman does is so important um, at the US Embassy. Sean emphasizes the connection between food and identity. And uh, as I look through the work that he's done, uh, the incredible body of work that he's done, I see the, um, uh, the way that he's brought uh, pride to food culture and that it, uh, the way that it promotes inclusion and representation. Sean goes even further, and he uses his platform and his talent to promote change. Uh, Sean's, uh, Sean's work has tackled the issues of food insecurity. Um, he's addressed the, the concept of colonization of food. And is working to unravel the impacts of colonized food, a colonized diet, with a focus on health uh, and nutrition. The changes that Sean is making are creating space space for inclusion, um, space for identity to be acknowledged and embraced, and space for dignity. Um, and uh, that's one of the reasons I'm so excited, um, as I know we all are, to welcome Sean here. Thank you so much, Sean Chairman.
2: All right. My name is Sean Sherman. Um, I said in Lakota, hello, everybody. Um, good evening. Um, my uh, Lakota name is uh, Wambli Watakpe. It translates to charging eagle. Um, and when I was younger, I thought that was a very cool name. And when I got older, I realized I just spent too much money on credit cards. So, <laughs> um, Anyways, I am going to talk to you guys a little bit about the work that we do, and um, and I just want to uh, explain the work that we do because it's really important to kind of see uh, an Indigenous perspective no matter where you might be in the world, and it's just uh, what we've really gone into, so um, I'll just kind of jump into it, but myself, I was born on a reservation in South Dakota in the United States called Pine Ridge Reservation. Pine Ridge Reservation is uh, roughly the size uh, of Connecticut, um, and, but it's also been the poorest area in the entire United States ever since since inception in the late 1800s. Um, both my parents were born and raised on the reservation. I was also born and raised on the reservation, um, and there's just, uh, you know, I've been a chef for quite a while. Um, My mom moved us off the reservation right before I started high school in my teen years, and I started working in restaurants right away. We were poor, like a lot of people from the reservation, and um, my got a job in a kitchen at the age of 13 and I started just working really hard and I just worked all through high school all through college after college I moved to the city of Minneapolis in Minnesota in the United States and I was continued working restaurants and I moved my way up to a chef career at a pretty young age so I was about 26 27 when I got my first chef career um, and uh, it was good you know but I spent quite a few years just uh being a chef uh, researching i didn 't go to culinary school. I just learned by working really hard um, and just kind of grinding through the the just the restaurant scene. And um, a few years into my chef career, I kind of had the epiphany of doing the work that I'm doing today, because I realized one day the complete absence of indigenous foods out there, um, and even, uh, any, even the knowledge of it, because I realized in my own education, which, you know, as a culinary person, I, I learned a lot about French cuisine, you know, and I worked at Italian restaurants and Spanish restaurants, and so I can name hundreds of European dishes easily off the top of my head, and I knew, but I knew very little about my own Lakota and ancestry. And it was really striking to me. And so I just really wanted to understand, you know, why was that? Because my ancestors, you know, um, still practiced a lot of indigenous ways. And, you know, my whole family was from the indigenous peoples of where I was from. And so why didn't, when I was growing up in the seventies, like, why wasn't that knowledge there? Like, why did I have, like, I could count less than 10 recipes that were truly Lakota. Um, I remember asking my mom if she had any family recipes or any books or cookbooks or recipe cards that anybody wrote down with true Lakota recipes. And she's like, yeah, I got one from Pine Ridge. And she gave me, give me this little paperback booklet, um, recipe book, and I remember looking through it, and I was just so disappointed, because it wasn't what I was looking for, um, and she's like, what are you looking for? I was like, well, you know, things that d- don't have Campbell's cream of mushroom soup in it, number one, you know, <laughs> I really wanted to understand, like, what were my Lakota ancestors really eating, you know, what were they foraging, how were they harvesting, were they growing things, were they trading with other people, which part of the plants were they using, which animals were they using, all these questions through a culinary perspective, and that information just wasn't there. Um, And, you know, it's crazy because as a kid, like you would think growing up on the reservation, we would have been around a lot of indigenous foods, but that just wasn't the way, you know. Um, So I spent a lot of time just contemplating and trying to understand, you know, what what was it? You know, what are indigenous foods? What does that mean to me? And what? Did, how do you even define indigenous foods? Um, and it became a long study. You know, it just became a really long study to understand all those questions when it came down to it. Um, and I, as I kind of learned more and started understanding more about um, what my ancestors were eating in the plains and um, what uh, you know, just what it what it meant to me to that be that term. It also became a study in history. It became a realization that my indigenous ancestors practiced their food ways that wasn't that long ago, you know, because I feel like growing up they made it seem like so long ago, like the history of indigenous peoples was was something that happened in the distant past. Um, But it wasn't true because, you know, I was born in 1974 and 100 years prior to my birth in 1874, all of my Lakota ancestors still maintained 100% of their indigenous education because they don't discover gold in the Black Hills until 1876. So within less than a single century, um, things got wiped away, and I wanted to know why. And what was that? What did that mean? And what was lost? You know, what did we lose? And that became the question that I started researching. And it really came down to understanding just what is the history you know, of how indigenous peoples were treated um, and that became the story that I was looking for to truly understand, the, uh, to answer the question why aren't there Native American restaurants in every single city across the United States because there's still indigenous peoples everywhere you know. so why can't you try these indigenous foods all over the place and why growing up on a, on a tribal community did we not have access to our own foods so it really became a study um, in the history of the United States and so I started using terms like we're making pre-reservation foods, we tried started trying to define it we're trying to decolonize our diet we're trying to use pre-colonial foods. And then I realized that people didn't really always understand what the, that meant. So I always like to start the talk with just explaining, you know, what is the term decolonizing, pre-colonial, all those kinds of things mean. So the first thing you have to understand is just what does the term colonialism mean as a simple situation, right? So the easiest way to understand colonialism is to Google it. So if you Google the term colonialism, you'll get a definition, the policy or practice of acquiring partial or or full political control over another country, occupying it with settlers and exploiting it economically." And this isn't something that's unique to um, where I came from in the Americas, but this happened all across the globe, of course, in a very short time span of human history, um, primarily um, you know, from a lot of European powers at the time also. So um, this map will just show you really kind of quickly time frames of the spread of colonialism and the taking over of different indigenous land spaces on a massive scale um, throughout the Americas, North and South, Africa, India, the Middle East, Australia, New Zealand, Southeast Asia, Hawaii, like it gets really intense and it goes all the way up until around World War II and it starts to decline but it's not really really the declining of colonialism, it's just that colonialism shifts into imperialism and globalization so it looks different at that point in time but it's still active and it's still very alive. But for the United States people forget how young we are especially in the united states our history books don't teach us that situation so you have to remember like what did the united states look like even just in the year 1800 like in the year 1800 we were still we're still just babies when it comes to the world when it a little bit if you look at human history you know because in 1800 we're not much more than the 13 colonies that original that originally started the united states officially in the late 1700s and it's only the one it's the really one century of 1800 to 1900 which really became um, the reason I, w- the, I was looking for it to understand why don't we have Native American foods everywhere, you know? So that one single century, um, it's just un- it's important to understand what happened to us as Indigenous peoples because at the beginning of that century, over 80% of that land space is, o- is stewarded and occupied by Indigenous peoples. Most Indigenous peoples haven't even seen European peoples at this time, the phase in history. So within the single century, um, there's just a lot of very aggressive actions that are taking over land spaces across North America. America. or across the space that is the U.S. I mean, it's happening in other nations, too. But it moves really quickly. Um, Some states, uh, as they're forming, um, especially in the turn of the century, like California wipes out 90 percent of its indigenous population within a 20-year period between 1850 and 1870 because they have legalized bounty systems back then. Um, And it's just a really violent time of history for indigenous peoples and for my peoples. My peoples were still battling the United States up until the 1890s. So, again, it wasn't a long time. ago. Ago for us um, to have lost so much culture, so much language, so much everything, especially food, you know. So, so that really became the, the 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 catalyst for me wanting to understand like how do we bring this back, you know. And it's just so understanding that history is so important because you know the United States forms very quickly, um, you know, and you know it all comes from the from um, from the doctrine of discovery, which basically gave European powers the right to own things that they discover. Um, which is kind of silly, but so many laws are still written for that very notion, you know, and like its just it 's insane that you can just think like if you find something that you get to keep it right <laughs> you get to claim it, so try that at the apple store it won 't work. Um. <laughs> Um, but you know so it's not even until the mid 1800s that the colonial borders actually formed to, to make it look like what we know as the United States today um, and again like you know there's just a lot of really intensity especially coming from the, from the government towards indigenous peoples because the government discovered early on by removing indigenous peoples it commodify land spaces sell it off and it makes a lot of money off of that situation um, so we see a lot of um, this happening and you know a, a lot of European um, homesteaders are moved over because a lot of land is opened up, you know. So like in Minnesota, we have a lot of Norwegian, um, Finnish, Swedish, Germanic um, descendants, but they were really just pawns in the colonial game of holding on to these land spaces and taking over. Um, but it's just part of our history, and I think it's important for people to understand history because um, it's a crazy time. You know, some people are trying to erase history, and some some governments, like our like my own, is trying to take history away from us still. But I think it's important that because the history is going to always be there, no matter what. And it's better we just know it, so we don't re- replicate it. You know that we that we can be better humans moving forward. Um, during this time period of colonialism um, where we came from, we also not only saw an immense loss of life for indigenous peoples, but we also saw a changing landscape because colonialism for us meant a lot of mining uh, situations happening, a lot of logging, mowing down entire forests, um, unregulated, you know. So we lost all of the redwoods, per se. There's, only, there's less than 8% of them standing of the old-growth redwoods and that last for thousands of years. And the indigenous peoples had learned to live with them harmoniously, never having to cut them down. But being able to build longhouses as big, as larger than this room, you know, um, and knowing that those those trees were so um, resilient that they were fire resilient, resilient, they were resilient against insects, um, and they were able to harvest them sustainably for so long. But you know, you know, when the lumber industry comes in, they just mow them all down because they just see money, and that's just kind of part of the colonial machine is taking turning resources into profits. But those profits go to a very, very few select people when it comes down to it and we just again you know it's just a really intense time but as indigenous peoples we had a lot of agriculture in north america which doesn't get talked about a lot because agriculture starts at the bottom of mexico for north america for the americas and it shoots both directions into north and south america and we're growing things like corns and beans and squash and chili peppers and cotton and tobacco and a whole bunch of cool stuff right which a lot of uh, countries around the world have now adopted as their own when it comes down to it you know uh, chocolates and vanilla, like you name it potatoes right there's so many f- foods that came directly from the Americas that people now claim to be their traditional foods right um, so but we see a lot of destruction of our crops and seeds. Um, I became very close with seed savers and seed keepers to find out how many indigenous seeds were still out there because in the area of the United States um, you know the spread of corn culture goes from Mexico throughout all of Mexico throughout the entire Caribbean all the way up the eastern seaboard all the way up the Mississippi and Missouri River Valleys, basically almost half of what is North, what is the U.S. is all agricultural. And especially the tribes in the Northeast, they had very advanced agricultural practices, townships, and they're the ones that taught the, the British colonists how to grow things and how to survive in the climates that they were in and gave them the seeds to be able to do that, right? Um, but... When the United States is very young, um, and you know, one of the first things Gen- President Washington does is, dis- is order the destruction of the indigenous peoples. He calls for the complete and utter destruction of all indigenous peoples of that area, of the Northeast, in New York. Um, and his general, General Sullivan, accomplishes that within a single summer between May and September. But we see a lot of this violence happening towards our indigenous peoples during that century. But it sets the tone from that very first presidential order all the way through, um, especially through the 1800s. And where I grew up and where I live now in Minnesota, my Dakota relatives tried to rise up and they were forced to, they were eventually um, uh, defeated and they were pushed onto concentration camps. And then they were later pushed into uh, further territories, which is where my mom's family comes from. Um, But these, these things are all too common in American history, but unfortunately they never make it into our history books. So very few people actually read about them or hear about them or even learn about them. And I just think it's really important to have those Conversations, you know, good and bad, we should all just know history when it comes down to it. And we all have heard about how the American bison, or maybe some of us have heard about how the American bison was almost completely um, wiped off the map, but we don't talk about how that actually happened. And again, that was because um, back then, the United States government, trying to figure out what to do with these tribes that were holding such large land spaces, um, they had to decide whether they commit all out genocide or if they're able to hobble them. And they figured out by removing their main food source, such as the bison. That they would be able to do just that, Um, so they spend a couple of decades just completely wiping out bison in the western states, um, like where I'm from. Um, And as a Lakota, we still have stories about when the bison disappeared and trying to comprehend this massive change and shift that was happening in our in our world. You know, to have something that we're so close to, you know, because I I mean I I know that there's even similar stories to this with some of the Sami people here and the reindeer and the caribou, Um, and you know you can find these similar stories all over the place with the Navajo and their and their churro lamb sheep, um, and it kind of goes on and on. But again, it's just very aggressive, very intentional, and it's just a part of the story of how we lost foodways as indigenous peoples. Um, I found reports like this in the history saying that in 1874, um, there's reporting that there's 2,000 hunting parties on the plain killing the bison for hides. One party of only 16 hunters reported having killed 28,000 bison just in a single summer. Um, because when the... The United States did a, an initial estimate of how many bison were on the plains. It was in the hundreds of millions. And by the time of the 1900s, there was just barely 500-ish animals left alive on the entire continent. So it was pretty intense. But what was really damaging to us as indigenous peoples was the assimilation efforts. as just the eradication of our own indigenous education. So if you take the time to define indigenous education, it's education. It's just what we were learning, right? We didn't have school systems per se, but we had really great knowledge bases. We had amazing education. So we had generations upon generations upon generations of ancestors handing down uh, knowledge, uh, basically giving us the tools to live sustainably with the world around us, primarily plant knowledge when it comes down to it. Understanding that we can find know-how to harvest things, uh, which parts to harvest, we can make clothing, we can make weapons, we can make housing and lodging, we can make food, we can do all sorts and medicines, we can do everything with the world around us. You know That's really important knowledge. You know? And so my grandparents' generation, which is the first generation for, for where I'm at um, to face these assimilation efforts, they should have been downloading those thousands of generations of knowledge bases. You know? But instead, the assimilation efforts are intense, They have to go through boarding school systems. They're forced to cut their hair. They're forced forced to learn English. They're forced to um, learn Christianity. They're forced to just do all the things that happens um, in that time period. Um, And these residential schools happen to appear all over, um, everywhere across North America, throughout the United States, and throughout Canada. And they're called residential schools in Canada, but it's the same system. And maybe some of you had seen in the news that during the pandemic time, they started searching the grounds of some of these residential schools in Canada finding hundreds of unmarked graves of young children, um, and that was just the reality, that a lot of children didn't even survive this situation. And it also just passes down a lot of trauma to these kids, because these kids are subjected to mental abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and that resonates within our tribal communities still today, um, teaching that, that kind of situation. So the indigenous experience in the 1900s, past that really intense century, you know, was still, still very trying for us. Um, you know, so we're not officially citizens until 1924 in the United States as indigenous peoples, even though we're the original peoples there. Um, during the same time, they have to define us because they only had laws to segregate black Americans. Um, so they had to create situations to segregate indigenous peoples at that time in history also. We go through a very intense couple of decades of Indian termination and relocation, which um, took stripped away some of our um, rec- tribally recognized uh, um, titles and situations. Um, but we also go through an, an Indian adoption era between 1941 and 1967, which is really intense, because during this time period, which is a pretty long time period, it's almost 30 years, but one one out of three indigenous children are pulled from their homes and put into non-indigenous families, which is just another form of cultural genocide. Um, we can't vote until 1965. We can't even celebrate our own freedom of religion until 1978, even though that's what a lot of the Constitution was written upon, was freedom of religions. Um, and then growing up in post colonial Native America, so when I'm born in the late 70s, I'm born in 74, and um, you know, what was life like? You know, because I get a lot of attention as a chef. They want to know, like, you're a chef, you're from the, from a tribal community. What kind of foods did you eat growing up? Because they want to hear a cool story. They want to hear a story that, you know, I'd get up in the morning and I would make a slingshot and I'd take down an elk and we'd feed our whole community and pick some berries and all the things along the way. But that really wasn't the, the reality because I grew up with government sponsors commodity foods, which unfortunately isn't very good for us because these commodity foods are Highly processed lots of salts, lots of sugars, lots of carbs, and as indigenous peoples of North America and in many parts of around the world we don 't even have the enzymes to break down those kind of carbs. They just turn into fat, which turns into diabetes and heart disease and all sorts obesity, all sorts of things and some of our communities are facing up to sixty percent type 2 diabetes just because of the nutritional access that they have out there and When I was growing up, we just had these cans that would just say beef with juices, pork with juices, chicken with juices, salmon with juices, and it 's that with juices that Really sells that product, you know. Um, but so understanding all of that is just one step. So the history, it's important to understand. The history is not comfortable, but it's un- important to understand it. It's important to understand um, how do we move forward and how do you identify indigenous food systems, you know. So for me, I just started getting outside and just thinking and just trying to understand it all. But to understand indigenous, uh, the indigenous food systems for how I did it was just looking at North America as a whole. Because it's a big space, like it's a gigantic area. We've got everything from Arctic to, to tropical, you know? And there's a lot in between. And there's all sorts of growing regions and plants and animals that live amongst that area. And then to understand the diversity of indigenous peoples of that region, the one way to look at it is through language maps. So if you look at a language map, indigenous peoples were living in every single area of North America. And these 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 giant color blocks are even very vague and ambiguous because within those giant color blocks there's all sorts of dialects and other groups within there too. But at least you can start to see diversity there. You know, so our vision is one day that you can drive across North America experiencing indigenous food, stopping at indigenous restaurants, experiencing all this amazing cultural diversity and really respecting it, you know? Because, you know, America is so much more than hamburgers and Coca-Cola. We have so much amazing food. We have so much amazing culture and history and we should really be proud of all that history, you know, even despite some of the hardships that people had to go through. And we have to face those hardships, you know? The United States government still has to come to terms with the destruction of indigenous peoples and cultures and um, just, you know, utilizing, um, bringing over so many indigenous peoples from Africa to f- as forced labor to build so much at the same time. Um, there's still 634 tribes in Canada, 574 in the United States, 228 of those tribes are all in Alaska. In Mexico, 20% of Mexico still identifies as indigenous. There's over a million Mayan speakers still across the Yucatan um, in that southern region of Mexico. And when you compare um, indigenous communities to the colonial borders, you know, there's no comparison. You know? So for us as indigenous peoples, it doesn't even matter who's speaking English or Spanish or French because those are all foreign languages to us. Those are all European languages. And what's more important is to understand the true like, backbone of what is North America, you know, the true root system of the whole situation. So that's why it's really important to define indigenous education and to really make it accessible to people. Um, so when we're looking at indigenous education, it's not just about food. It's about how people survived for countless generations, utilizing everything around them. And this is a blueprint that we can utilize for, as indigenous peoples anywhere in the entire world, because there's indigenous peoples that face the same history everywhere, including here with the Sami people who have faced so many challenges and struggles themselves. So we're looking at a study of wild foods, permaculture, agriculture, seed saving, seasonal lifestyles, ethno-oceanography, hunting, fishing, whole animal butchery, mycology salt sugar fat productions crafting land stewardship cooking techniques indigenous metallurgy um, indigenous histories traditional medicines food preservation fermentations nutrition health spirituality and more (laughs) there's a lot to indigenous education that we can really be breaking out because for us the westernized education is not really giving us the right tools you know i tease people in america that they their kids can name more of kim kardashian's ex-boyfriends than they can tree species right now you know we can be doing so much better when it comes to indigenous teaching, what's really important. And just getting outside and learning the plants around you, you know, is such an important thing. And just taking time to really create educational tools and curriculum that we can utilize in our school systems to really define that, especially within tribal communities, who it's going to be so important for us to help steward their cultures and their languages and their knowledge bases, reclaim and rebuild what might have been lost, and just give them the tools that they need to be strong for the future. So understanding foods, let's just talk about food because food is fun. Everybody likes food um, for the most part. My sister doesn't like food, but everybody else does. <laughs> um. <clears throat> proteins are an easy one because basically where we are in North America like the style of food that we did was cut out colonial ingredients just to understand what was around us. you know. So at the restaurant that we have, it's called Awamni um, and it's a short for this long name Awamniyamni, which meant the place of the falling swirling waters, which depicted this waterfall that eventually became downtown Minneapolis. So we just reclaimed the name of where we happened to be, which is downtown Minneapolis. Um, but, you know, so we cut out things that didn't exist there before. So for us, we're not using beef, pork, or chicken because those animals didn't exist on the continent before colonialism. We cut out dairy because dairy was only utilized for child rearing for the most part. Sometimes animals were slaughtered um, that had milk in them, but that, there would be very special recipes that that would be used for. But for the most part, there was a lot of respect and they usually didn't kill mothers uh, mothers carrying uh, mo- mothers, animals that were mothers carrying milk um, unless it was necessity. Um, so we also cut out wheat flour because that was also introduced. And we also cut out cane sugar, which was also introduced. We kept coffee because we can't let go of coffee. Um. <clears throat> But basically, any animal out there is literally game when it comes down to it, you know, so people shouldn 't be afraid of food if it doesn 't happen to be a cow a pig or a chicken you know and i 've seen lots of amazing food here, so I think you guys got get that a little bit better um, but you know we're at in America they, one thing they teach us when we 're kids is how the natives uh, were able to utilize every part of the bison you know as an example of indigenous peoples and how resourceful but that 's what that lesson is about is just being resourceful because we had thousands of generations of education education. education passed down to know what to do with every single piece, right? But we took that same mentality with plants, with animals, with everything when it comes down to it. Because we didn't have the privilege to be wasteful. Today, we literally buy something and throw it away moments later. And we're just like creating so much trash. We could all be more resourceful, you know? We could all utilize things better. We just let things rot in our refrigerators and we throw them away, you know? We go to a restaurant and we order too much food and we have them pack it so we can chill it before we throw it away, right? To create more trash, so we do all sorts of stuff, you know, we can just be so much better. Um, and, you know, and when it comes to proteins, we shouldn't be afraid of insects because it's another form of protein out there. You know, I serve crickets at my restaurant um, in a space where it's not, you know, cricket or eating insects isn't necessarily a thing. But I'm selling about 15 pounds of crickets a week, which is quite a bit. That's like, what, seven kilos ish somewhere in there. Right. It's a lot of crickets, you know, they, and they don't weigh much. So it's a, it's a lot. So just being able to introduce that, I think, is really important, too. But for me, the biggest piece that helped me connect with my indigenous ancestry um, and education was really the plant knowledge. Because that's where it's at, you know. Because it's just taking a look at the world differently. And if you take the time to just, like, stop calling everything a weed and getting to really know the name of the plant, what you can do with it, and finding that connection with the plant, you know. There's so much amazing food and flavor and everything. There's medicines and crafting, all of it, right. The plants have so much to offer us. Um, And it's just important to, to see that when we're out and about, because we have so much wasted land space that we could be utilizing as, as food production, and wild food production at that, because, you know, and it's not about just like crawling around the woods looking for foods, we can cultivate foods, you know, we can create permacultural landscapes, utilizing plants that are naturalized to that region and are from that region, not trying to introduce other plants, but letting things grow the way they want to grow, and creating troves of food, you know, um, and just understanding how humans were living for so long before the industrial complex of food happened. Happened, you know, what kind of carbohydrates were people utilizing? We had things like this prairie turnip that grew wild all around us, and that was one of the pieces that we were able to maintain in our culture. <laughs> or they had camas root in the Pacific North, Northwest in California. Or in Minnesota, we have wild rice, which you guys get to try tonight because Nancy has saved some rice from Minnesota and you should, they made it, and you guys are going to be able to taste it tonight, so it's going to be fun. And it's true wild rice, so it's not like um, this stuff just grows out of the lakes and people still use canoes and they just gather it in their canoes and take it back and parch it over a fire and then winnow it to get all the shell off of it and it's just this beautiful product. It's really grass seed, so it's, not, so it's really high in protein, it's really good for you and it's just really unique because it only grows in a small area in the entire world which is just around the Great Lakes around in the United States. Um, Which was where we happened to be, and so many um, of those wild wild rice production lakes um, were destroyed because people started buying up land spaces, building um, big vacation homes, and mowing down wild rice beds so they can have room for their jet skis and their canoes and whatever they're doing, you know. And so we can just do a little bit better um, when it comes to that, and that's why you see so many things in the news with indigenous people standing standing up to fight for environmental situations because that's a part of our food, that's a part of our histories. and, you know, it's it's more about, like, like we, we've seen a lot of fights against big oil and pipelines coming through these really delicate ecosystems, right? And it's not a matter of if those pipelines leak, but when they leak and how much damage will they leave behind. And will our grandchildren have even access to these foods that we have today um, with the little amount? You know, in the United States, it's tough because um, privately owned land space is at a direct echo of colonialism It's still 98% white European owned when it comes down to the land land spaces privately owned in the United States. But the knowledge of plants are amazing, and people who lived on the coastal regions, there's even more plants out there for them that they pass down this knowledge. Because people have been utilizing this knowledge for so long, and we can still we can still hold on to this knowledge, you know. Or if you're in desert regions where all the plants look like they want to hurt you or maim you, it's important to know that indigenous peoples knew very well this situation. And it's almost silly to use the term food desert because people from the desert saw nothing but food around them because every they just knew how to look at the world differently, you know. You see food everywhere. So that's just really important. And when it comes to American agriculture, um, I think it's something that people should talk about more because, again, like so many staples of the world's food came from this amazing situation that was going on in the Americas. Um, because we, we live in a world today where we think this, that we're at the pinnacle of, of modern agriculture, but this is really damaging. We know what this monocultural system is doing and the, the companies that are pushing a lot of you know seeds and chemicals onto people but, and what these chemicals are doing to the soil. You know, and these chemicals are getting into not only the soil and the foods that they're growing, but they're also getting into the water, which is getting into our towns, which is getting into our neighborhoods, getting into our houses and getting into our bodies. And it's dangerous. We don't even know what's going to happen to this generation after um, digesting micro amounts of these chemicals over a massive amount of time. So when we see articles like "How worried should it be that glyphosate was found in our Cheerios?" like we should be really worried because that stuff's nothing to mess with, you know. Um, so that's why we should really be supporting a lot of really clean agriculture. And for the Americas, they literally had so much amazing agriculture. You know, if, if anyone's ever been down in the Yucatan in Mexico, like the Mayan civilization was massive, and they stretched out from like South America all the way up into the southeastern what is the United States today, and everywhere in between. And they spread so much corn culture across the you know and it was really insane and you know when the Spanish first show up to what is today Mexico City in Tenechitlan you know they had these floating garden systems and they're growing the same things as the Mayans like all these varietals of corns and beans and squash and chili peppers and sunflowers and cotton and tobacco and all this amazing amazing stuff right and you can trace corn culture as it moves up into North America like this is a Zuni farm in in the southwest and what is like New Mexico northern New Mexico area and they figured out how to farm in the desert you know and figure out how to get water to those and do that for thousands of years. So, and there's just so many cool varietals of seeds that have come out of the, of the indigenous peoples of the Americas, but we're in danger of losing those seeds because, again, like those big seed companies are trying to buy them all up because they want to control that food, right? So it's really important that we do whatever we can to steward these seeds to make sure that they, main, they, re, they stay in the hands of indigenous peoples who really have the strongest connection to them, who knows the stories, who knows their true names when it comes down to it, because each one of these seeds comes from very particular groups of people, very particular land spaces with very particular stories and histories behind them. And so many religions are even based upon these seeds. You know, There's such deep connections. So we, as this generation, really have to understand how important that is um, and how important it is just to save this biodiversity and do whatever we can to protect it and preserve it and to just maintain it for future generations because it's disappearing rather quickly um, and we somebody has to stand up for it, so it has to be us. You know, we have to do, do whatever we can because there's just a lot of amazing diversity out there left um, with this, and we should we should be happy with that. You know, it's really amazing foods. So. For me it was more of like how do we how do we um, like figure this out? Like how do we pay respect to our ancestors? How do we pay respect to all these people who live before us, understand the struggles that they want that they went through, you know? How can we be the answer to our ancestors' prayers as indigenous peoples? So part of it was just doing it, it was just getting outdoors, starting to understand the food, starting to see food everywhere, starting to make our own pantries, you know, we don't have to go to the grocery store to buy spices, we can just make food taste like where we happen to be. Just by taking the time to connect with the plants and the animals and everything to preserve them, you know, and making food taste like where we are. You know, it's that simple to just like start to start to learn and start to see. It's all around us. And as chefs, you know, we can entice people because people love food. You know, food is a language, and we chose to use food as this language to entice people to see something bigger and deeper, to start to respect, to stop homogenizing, but to embrace the diversities that are out there and to see that this story is not unique to. North America, it's everywhere across the globe. And we all have to work together as a global community when it comes down to it to make these changes, um, to live a healthier future, to be better humans for the future generations. Because food is fun, you know, food tells stories, food makes us feel good, you know, and having clean food that's not over processed, it's so good for us. And for us, we just wanted to get this food back into the hands, of, especially of our Indigenous elders, because so many of our Indigenous communities don't have access to these foods, you know, some of the The elders remember their grandparents cooking these foods, um, but the younger generations don't see it because they're getting their foods from gas stations and from the commodity food program in the United States, and we can do so much better. And it's really insane that, you know, my restaurant, Awamni, happens to be one of the only ones like it in the entire probably world almost, you know. We need to see more of this style of just having restaurants with intention, serving healthy, amazing foods that's culturally and seasonally relevant of where we might be standing So I also started a nonprofit to be able to help to do this work on a larger scale. Um, So the nonprofit is called NATIVES. It's an acronym for North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. And I have two pillars of focus, which is creating access to indigenous education and creating access to indigenous foods, which is two things that our colonizers had used against us, removing us from our foods and removing us from our own education, um, which I think is going to be the most powerful. So through this, we created a, a kitchen space called Indigenous Food Lab where we're able to process a lot of food. We've done a lot of food relief. We were born right during the George Floyd murder that happened in Minneapolis, just a few blocks from us, which destroyed all the buildings around our kitchen. And we started just getting food out there. But our real goal was to create a space where we can work with tribal communities, help them to relearn to, and give them recipes and menus so that they can do this work in their own communities and give them access to these foods so they can, we can help distribute these foods to them if they need to. Um, because the benefits of an indigenous diet anywhere the world is going to be healthy fats, healthy, diverse proteins, low carbs, low salts, immense plant diversity, um, organic agriculture, um, celebrating culturally and regionally diversities, and regional and seasonal-based food systems, because we want to get to a point where we can have indigenous food sovereignty at some point, which is we need these steps to reach that, which is healthy food access, um, cultural food producers, regional food systems, local control of food systems, meaning non-governmental, and access to indigenous education, and environmental protections. Those are steps that we need to actually have true food security um, for our communities. So, we just want to help see more in, um, indigenous community gardens start up. And we live in a very cold space, too, just like you guys, where we get a few months of really awesome growing season and then we have like 18 months of winter, right? <laughs> and then, um, but it's just going to be important, like, we, and I, in the United States, I tell people all the time that lawns are stupid, like, we should just be creating food everywhere, we should just be putting plants everywhere, you know, but we also need to be able to create a support system so we can teach people how to do this food in their own communities, you know, to give them their own situations, like, we're working with my tribe um, right now, helping them to redevelop one of their school kitchens, because all of their equipment was dated, it was all from the 60s, you know, it was about as old as me, which, I'm not that old, but that, you know <laughs> there's better stuff out there, so I just want to teach we want to be able to teach them to give them the right tools and resources to be able to do it themselves because if you can control your food you can control your future and that's why those large companies want to control your food because they want to control you when it comes down to it so we just have to think better we can have community-based food systems you know we can be working together so for us we want to open up indigenous food labs in cities all over the place we're already taking steps to open one up in Anchorage Alaska, Bozeman, Montana. Rapid City, South Dakota, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. but And we're going to be able to grow more and more because each one could just you know become a center point for creating access to indigenous education um, and indigenous food, food distribution, basically, and building more. And then we can really see that vision of being able to, having these systems where we can drive across this region, to, uh, the, those regions, to be able to celebrate and experience all this amazing food and just have healthy food access is what's the most important piece is. And to create a lot of just Indigenous economics when it comes to food production. We try and prioritize all of our purchasing from Indigenous producers locally and then nationally when it comes down to it. But we don't have to stop there because colonial borders doesn't mean anything to us. You know, We can be around the world. We should be creating Indigenous... We can create Indigenous food labs all over the place to help people do the same work, to help to reclaim, to re-understand, and to just make it a part of their daily lives and to take the tools to help build the tools and the resources that they might need to really reclaim um and and take back you know what's truly that of that region to help that global the global uh Population, just celebrate our amazing diversity, you know? We just, like, we have so much amazing diversity across the globe, and we should really understand the amazing knowledge that Indigenous people still hold all over the place and the deep connections that they have to those land spaces that they live upon. So we really true, truly believe that it's really up to all of us to protect our Indigenous futures for everybody because it's not going to happen overnight, obviously. Some of these things might take lifetimes to do, but we can start building, you know, the first foundation. Of how to do this um, for the future. Um, If people want to learn more about my work, um, you're more than welcome to find my cookbook that's out there. There's another one coming that's going to focus all on North American diversity. And uh, that's my talk.
3: Thanks so much, uh, Sean. And um, I just want to say and you're actually welcome to sit here so that people can see you and also relate to, uh, to you. Um, and I'm looking at my colleague to make sure that my microphone is, uh, is working well enough. Um, thanks so much for a very inspiring story, but also a story that's, of course, deeply disturbing, uh, based on an incredible amount of knowledge. I'm very uh, impressed how you use your position uh, and the kind of, as a cook, and what you've uh, you've um, built up to educate us on history. I think it's incredibly important. You say that we did not have the privilege to be wasteful. I think also today we don't have the privilege to be wasteful, even if we think we do. Um, and I think also, I mean, this event is about food as a catalyst for change. Uh, your talk really shows the urgency of that, so... Um, Thank you so much for uh, for the talk. Um, My name is Cindy Rost. I'm a research professor at the Peace Research Institute Oslo. I'm also the director of the Center on Culture and Violent Conflict. Uh, And at the center, we are interested in understanding the importance of language, memory, history, philosophy, creative expression, cultural production, and now definitely also food to understand the dynamics of violent conflict and peaceful coexistence. Um, before, I'm sure many of you have so many questions to uh, to Sean, but before that, I have the honor to host a conversation between Sean and Diala Brisley. So, Diela, if you could come up as well. Diala is an animator, painter, illustrator, and muralist, and she started her artistic career. That's her. <laughs> she. She started her artistic career in Syria and then continuing in exile in Turkey, Lebanon, and now in France. She's also an amazing cook. Um, so I thought before we start a conversation, uh, I'm very curious to hear, Diala uh, you explaining why you're a good conversation partner for Sean. What, uh, so introducing yourself and also saying something about how you relate to this uh, this topic and then with that I'll sit down next to you so that I don't uh, but go ahead
4: Yeah. Um, yeah I uh, usually i am an artist I do visual art uh, but when I uh, arrived to France uh, they told me like oh you must have like a culture shock and I was like Yes, it's about food. <laughs> so I, I was, like, really tired of having really processed food all the time from the supermarket. Uh, so then I was staying w- uh, with a French family. And after a month of, like, uh, getting really tired in my stomach, uh, I decided, like, how how about, like, I cook for you? So then the husband was allowed to have uh, dinner to have, like, uh, uh, because, like, uh, uh, he was trying to lose weight and it's healthy. So, (laughs) and uh, when um, I moved to Valence, uh, As a city, like, I didn't know anyone there. So I didn't know how to start a um, social life. So I decided, like, to cook for people and invite them uh, uh, online. Uh, then, like, uh, I became popular, like, I cook very good food, uh, Syrian food, and very healthy. So m- my social life started with this. <laughs> uh, and then, like, I, I noticed, like, how... Uh, it's like really, uh, the pharmacy industry is very strong in the modern world. And, uh, they have like this trendy clinics. They call it, um, uh, alternative, uh, alternative medicine, which is like, uh, it's our original medicine for us. And it doesn't need any clinic. <laughs> it was like my, uh, my grandma, uh, uh, recipes. So, uh, for me, uh, like, uh, we didn't uh, need any certificate to understand this, uh, so yeah, this is my uh, story with the culture shock. <laughs> so,
3: so one question I had for you is whether you could say something about uh, your reflections on what Sean was uh, was talking about and how yeah, whether you have questions to him.
4: Yeah, actually, uh, especially when I was looking at the corn, because like uh, in France, uh, it's really hard to find uh, fresh corn. Uh, But then you see a lot of like uh, corn fields. And it was like, where all this corn go? (laughs) Why we can't eat it? And they said, it's for the cows. So, but uh, like in the the same time in and the supermarket if you, you see there is corn but it's all canned with poison so i'm really surprised like that we can't have like the, this i mean all the way of dealing with food is so different than what i used to and also like there is bio organic whatever thing and all that we i mean we don't have any chem- uh, chemical things Also, like farmers, they used to come to uh, Syria, uh, to to Damascus uh, from around uh, to sell uh, their food, uh, uh, sometimes with a horse. Uh, It's like really I feel like I traveled by time when I came to Europe. <laughs> and like, I, I just hear them like uh, calling, uh, like, lemon, uh, milk, na, na, and we pasteurize it at home. So I just like open the window and I call him, and they, and they send me, and, and really uh, talking about like all this uh, food thing, uh, how it's healthy. And I feel like now, I'm so so worried of everything I'm buying from the supermarket. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I feel like this. I feel very related because this. Um, I mean, it's very trendy now to to have healthy food, mm-hmm. which is like was <clears throat> always before, and I. I just came from from a continent to another. I felt like I'm traveling by time. And when I tell people what I eat, and you, they tell me, "Oh, you are such a hipster," but <laughs> <laughs> but like this is what how we eat there. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and I, I just feel like um, you know, food access is such an issue across the globe, and it shouldn't just be which uh, country or neighborhood you live in that defines how much healthy food access you have. You Because know, as humans, we should have healthy food access everywhere, obviously. Um, and there's a lot of issues that we have to get through. There's a lot of uh, solutions we have to find to make that happen. And we see it, again, like this work isn't unique to North America, obviously. This is happening all over the place. And it's just getting people to wake up a little bit and to see that and to understand some of the privileges that others might have that others don't, you know, when it comes down to it.
4: Mm. Yeah. And about like uh, <clears throat> the herbs, like it's like, it's everywhere in the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes uh, I pick up some dandelion and I put them in my tea because it's full of potassium, by the way, mm-hmm. more than a banana. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, once uh, there is a kid um, in France, he told me, he told me like, oh, there is a lot of animals. They peed over it, and I was like, what about your McDonald's?
5: <laughs> <laughs> right? It's,
2: it's
4: very. It's, we don't know what's even in it. I have no
2: idea. <laughs> so,
4: so yeah, so yeah, I see like this. Like the big differences and too much money we have to put on having a healthy food, while it was like very organic how to get really healthy food in Syria. So I don't know. Like I and also like it's just the idea of uh, like going to a special clinics to to have like these recipes, these herbs that helps us. Uh,
3: uh, it's it's ironic.
2: Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely.
3: <laughs> Could I ask you also, because of course we, uh, we're talking about food as a catalyst for change. Um, the history you talked about and everything that this is situated in, um, how do you feel that you're actually able to use food as that catalyst for change? Kind of considering the magnitude of what you're up against. Do you feel it's <coughs> been possible within your personal life but also on a societal level? Do you have bigger just, dreams than what is possible now? I just
2: think that you know we've been able to create such a platform where there's been so much curiosity and interest that um, you know, I could just go the typical route of a restaurant and just like make it about the ego of the chef, um, but it was far from that situation because this was never about me to start with. You know, this we should be seeing in North America, especially in the U.S. or Canada, wherever. But we should have been. We should be seeing Native American restaurants and eat all over the place, anyways, especially on tribal communities when it comes down to it. And it's just not there, so. Um, We've been able, we've received lots of accolades, which has been great, but it just helps us to build this bigger platform. Because um, this year we just, uh, we re- one of the bigger restaurant awards is the James Beard Awards in, in the United States is called, and we received best new American restaurant in the entire United States, which was huge because typically those awards are going to European chefs making European foods, you know. Mm. So it's very rare that our, it might even, I don't even know, maybe it's the only one, I have no idea. I haven't researched the history <laughs> of that situation, but it's great to be able to receive that just because it gets people to be like, oh, what is that, you know. Um, and we're very intentional because again like we're intentional about not only the foods we don't have on the menu by removing colonial ingredients we're creating a conversation around that but also where we're purchasing our foods from and why we're putting certain foods on the menus you know Mm -hmm. and I think it's important to be able to if you're doing anything in the food world, to do it with intention. And we're not calling ourselves a health food restaurant, but we are because we're gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, soy-free, pork-free, you name it. It's like what every diet fad is trying to get to nowadays. But it just happens to be the indigenous foods of where we are. Um, And I think it's just important that, again, like we are able to i I feel like I have to use this platform to be able to talk about um, a lot of the atrocities that happened, a lot of the hardships that my people's had to go through um even just to be here because i'm lucky just to leave just to, i'm lucky to be here you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so I feel like there's no other path but to be able to be outspoken about it mm-hmm. you know, and food is something that we can all share like I said before, like when we 're having wonderful food like it gives us a moment to contemplate you know it 's such a powerful language because food is a cultural identifier for us you know we think about our grandparents foods our great grandparents foods we have such a deep connection to Mm -hmm. that and for so many communities around the world who had to go through the colonial machine uh, we've been uh, we've lost a lot you know Um, and some of us are lucky to retain a lot and some of us have lost almost everything but there's paths to rebuild and reclaim and there's paths to understand and I think that's why we use food um, as that Mm -hmm. language because it's something that we all get you know.
4: Yeah, like, uh, as I said, like, when I moved to uh, the city and I wanted, because, like, I have this stigma, like, refugees, so I wanted to show how our culture is really rich, and it was, like, by by cooking uh, yeah, our food, food, and they were, and th- I remember when they first came, I didn't know people back then, and they were like, wow, it's full of colors, and uh, for us in our culture, uh, as much as there is colors in uh, in the dish, as much as we have benefits, uh, so, um, uh, yeah, for me, it was like the reflection of uh, uh, this di- diversity that we have and how we, like, we have also, like, something to offer. Uh, I, I am in a host uh, society, but I thought, like, I will use uh, our hospitality uh, to communicate with that's other people. That's amazing. Yeah.
3: Yeah, mm. That's great. Yeah. And that's also how you are using food as a catalyst for change, or are there other ways in which you're thinking of that?
4: Yeah, actually, um, uh, I I didn't do something, like, in public uh, or, like, a uh, a restaurant like you are doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm still, like, thinking of food uh, now, uh, like, uh, how I can uh, make a book. I told you about the book I want to do as a storytelling. But uh, at least, like, uh, in the society around me, I wanted to show, like, how uh, we think of food. And uh, because, like, every time I'm invited to some people, they they bring things, like, frozen things, and they put them together and... And, and apart and so i wanted to show like how we came from like a culture we really uh, dif- look at food in a different way and uh, we also have something to offer even though like we came as refugees
3: in in uh, this country so mm. thank you um sean you were there are two things that you either talked about or they were on your slides <coughs> that i just wanted you to elaborate on and then i want to give everyone the chance to ask questions, so uh, get ready for uh, for that. Um, the first was like indigenous evolution revolution. Do you want to say something more about?
2: I just feel like, you know, we've been through so long. We've been, obviously, a marginalized community in the United States for uh, so so many of us. Again, there's so much diversity. You can't just say, what is a Native American dish? It's like saying, what is, what is a typical European dish? You know, because there's a lot of diversity, obviously, right? So uh, because we've gone through all this, um, we're just starting. You know, like when I started my company um, in 2014, um, there was not even barely a notion of this you know and today there's like literal movement happening there's all sorts of indigenous chefs coming out there's indigenous restaurants starting to open and we're doing everything we can to help be a support system to help build that as much as we can also Mm -hmm. and to just be a role model of what's possible when it comes down to it and it took a lot of effort because um, again like I grew up in a very poor area I didn't have a rich uncle or a trust fund to be able to help me open up a restaurant I had to struggle hard and work really hard to get to that point, you know, and um, I feel really lucky that we've been able to get so far within a short period of time from 2014 to now um, to be able to do this work so I feel like this is part of an evolution and it's part of a revolution at the same time it's changing something you know Mm -hmm. it's moving forward and we're not trying to cook like the past we're not trying to make food like it's 1491 you know we're trying to understand the knowledge of our ancestors and apply it today because we can evolve as humans as we always have and as indigenous peoples it's okay for us to evolve we don't have to stay exactly the same we don't have to be a picture perfect situation you know and as native americans we were never what we were portrayed as we were never that thanksgiving native in you know, a little cartoon you know <laughs> we were we're so much more we're so much more diversity there's so much more amazing stories and so much of, er- of everything you know we get to define who we are you know so that's why i feel like it's a little bit of both of that evolution and revolution mm. Yeah, awesome. I also
4: I noticed like how you uh, serve the food like uh, in a kind of modern way, mm-hmm. so I really like this and I um, because sometimes like I try to find uh, French recipes and I try to uh, I don't know if it's not a word but I will make it a word mm-hmm. Syrianize them. Go,
2: yeah. <laughs> we, we say indigenize on our. End. Oh yeah, okay.
4: <laughs> so I feel like I call this. These recipes, uh, integration recipes, mm-hmm. so like I, I can't like kind of invading. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like because uh, usually uh, in France is mostly uh, there is a lot of cheese for sure, butter and uh, cream fresh. Mm-hmm. So I use uh, the fr- French cheese and I mm-hmm. add to them like some our um uh syrian recipes and a lot of olive oil (laughs) so they tell me okay (laughs) cheese with olive oil we never had this before but but i think yeah it's about like evolution it's a way like to find something in the middle as well
3: yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely and connecting history and yeah. future in a way. So the final uh, question I had was: You said if you can control your food, you can control your future, and I think that needs a little bit more explanation. Could you?
2: I just know? think that we have the ability to really think about our food systems, and I think our food systems are very broken on a global scale. You know, um, you ha- we have to have money to have food, is what we're taught, and that's not the truth. You know, we can grow food in our backyards. We can grow food uh, in a community area. You know, when we can, we don't need money. To to process that. We can use community to help grow food and process food and collect food. We can utilize permacultural landscape by putting food plants everywhere and harvesting them and having trained kitchens to know how to dehydrate them, preserve them, do all the things, you know, and creating food pantries. Because like one city could just like take a park and just put all food plants in there, you know, and within a few years, all that food's going to start fruiting. And then you have people harvest that food, bringing it into a kitchen, process it. Just think about how much pantry item that that community could build off of just a couple, you know, just a little bit of land space um, to be able to address food needs that are everywhere you know there's people should have food you know there's people out there with no food trying hard just to stay alive every day you know so we just need to think about that change you know and for again like where i in an area where i grew up where we still face a lot of intense food challenges where there's still up to 80 percent unemployment in the community i grew up with you know and pine ridge being the size of the state of connecticut which is a pretty big area to have one grocery store um, with very little access to any kind of fresh food you know That a lot of change has to happen. But we can teach ourselves and teach our communities um, how to do better, how to grow food, how to process food, how to create food um, for ourselves and to be a lot more sustainable. And I think the pandemic showed some communities how important Mm. that is because people were facing food challenges like, well, I can't get all this stuff anymore. But it was all processed foods coming from different parts of the world. Like, if you're just buying all local foods, you know exactly where your food is coming from, you know, and you're able to support that system. So we should be supporting local as much as possible. And just think about these products you know we don't necessarily need avocados from mexico all the way norway Mm -hmm. all the time you know we should really be celebrating what's here and we should be eating a lot more plants when it comes down to it too you know so i went on a plant-based diet um last year just because i'm getting older and my cholesterol was getting really high so i just switched (laughs) to plant-based and within six months like i dropped a lot of weight and my cholesterol plummeted and it was good you know and i felt good you Mm know and sometimes it's hard to find just a plant like can i have a vegetable please that's not doused in butter and cream (laughs) that's just but um, I don't know I think that we we should think about how how we can do better with our food systems we shouldn't just be um, leaning into the industrialist food, food system and the capitalization and globalization of foods we should really be focused on making sure our own community has enough food for itself first and then we can start to trade with other communities as much as we can but we can create systems to be better at it.
3: Hmm. And, of course, that's a major task that I don't think uh, can be done and achieved if we really only think about the structural changes. But I like how you're kind of very hopeful from this kind of bottom-up community perspective and people taking things in their own hands. So yeah. uh, I really believe in that as well. <coughs> um, questions? If you There is a microphone there. Uh, and it would be great if you also introduce yourself. So there's a question at the back. Maybe we'll start there.
2: Multiple choice, please.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. My name is Ananda Christian. I'm from Urban Economy Forum. So um, thank you, for the inspiring um, uh, insight into... What has happened over the years, over the centuries, the injustices that have been caused to indigenous communities, that's globally also, you explained very well. And thanks again for your Syrian experience of making, you know, (laughs) Syrianizing uh, food. Uh, What I was wondering, your last comment that you mentioned, you know, that we are in an urbanizing world. Most of the countries are urbanizing, whereas North America is already urbanized. Over 80% of the people live in urban areas, whereas in developing countries, people are coming into cities from villages and kind of things. So what happens in the process is that, to what extent is the knowledge of of food is lost in the process of urbanization? That's number one. Other one is that, to what extent can we create urban areas into areas where we can also have food cultivation, not just restaurants. The production of food, urban food security, can this be something that could look, linking it up to climate change and circular economies? That is something that I think uh, linking it up so that you know you'll we'll have more of a, a linkages where food, uh, climate change, circular economy, culture, and food security based on indigenous cultures, food, for example, you know is something that we might want to look at. The other thing I was just wondering is that uh, when I was in East Africa, you know some people were telling me that uh, you know how did the maize or you call it corn become a major you know crop in, um, in in East Africa? It's because when the missionaries came. They encourage production of maize because it 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 required little attention to, you know, cultivate. That means people have more time to go to church. <laughs> so you so you had you know that that aspect of uh, food also is something that you might have to keep in mind. Thank you.
7: Okay,
2: that's a lot of questions, and it was a multiple choice, but I'll do my best. <laughs> um, I think that education of course is a, is one of the biggest factors when it comes to understanding our foods you know because like again our educational systems could be better we should be teaching edu- food education constantly to our youth you know how do food how does food grow you know how can we grow food indoors how do we how do we, we what do you do with a whole Vegetable when it's there. How do you create? How do you save seeds from everything to start it all over again? And how
4: to use the like uh, wild uh, <laughs> food as well? Because like sometimes it's everywhere uh, around us. I remember, like, sometimes we go in a picnic and, like, we start collecting things uh, to cook them in the evening. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes we, we have food for free.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, I think when it comes to the urbanization or just globalization of foods, again, like, we pushing back on education is going to be a big part of it, you know. So we should really push for that as much as we can. Um, I know growing up in the United States when I was younger, we did have things that they called home economics, which just teaching basics of how to cook, how to do. But they wiped all that away, you know. <laughs> like, and it's just so important. Like I'm worried about the younger generation in America, especially because I don't know if they know how to do anything but turn on the iPad. But um, you know, we'll just see <laughs> what happens. But again, like we have to focus on education. Um, and we have to think about diversity because not every nation is the same, obviously. Um, but we're all human when it comes down to it. We all need food every single day, and we should be making solutions to make that happen.
3: Thank you. There are a couple of questions. <clears throat> so a lot of questions, so I think we collect a few at the same time. So I think this gentleman here, and then it could be moved to that gentleman there. And then two more here.
7: Hmm. Uh, good evening, everybody. My name is Tererai Obeistole. I'm a political activist from Zimbabwe. Hmm. Uh, the first thing that I want to say, it's going to be a comment, and of course I'll come to your question if I'm allowed to do that. So the first thing that I want to do is to express gratitude by what you raise to say if you control your food you eventually control your future. So the political activist in me in the African context I actually realized that also governments of Tyran can also take advantage of food. So to say if someone is running through a life of hunger then they control you in terms of how you make your decisions and how they also suffocate your fundamental human rights because they can offer food or they can take away food from you. So it's something that I've actually realized that it makes more sense in my own context because also when you go for elections, for example, the ruling parties, will have a determination of who gets food and who doesn't get food on the basis of, you know, a partisan nature. So that's what's quite interesting. Then uh, my question to you, Sean, as well. Uh, I want to know, how easy or difficult it was for you to get acceptance when you introduced the traditional indigenous foods? I'm asking this question on the basis that having gone through years of colonialism as an example, which eventually distorted obviously the culture, the practices, and of course the indigenous food networks, how was it easy for you when you decided that you want to be a champion of indigenous foods in terms of the acceptance within the community? Thank you. So-
3: is it okay if we collect a few, or you want to answer one by one?
7: I'll just try it real quick, I guess, because so we
2: can move on. I mean, we'll mm-hmm. move through it fast. But um, I just feel like it's, it's a challenge, you know? It's a huge challenge to understand um, the knowledge of the ancestors. And it's going to be a lifetime worth of learning. I'll never get to the end of it, you know? And I'm fine with that. And I'm fine to, like... Um, you know, I go through lots of challenges, like some people in my own community will will um, push back against me for the work that I do because they'll, they'll just see it as uh, make, push, putting it into the mainstream you know and trying to profit and trying to get attention, but that's not what it's about you know I'm just trying to put it out there so other people can have open some doors for the next generation of people to do it and I researched a lot of traditional foods, but I tried not to do too much of that in the food I was doing because I was just showing a path that we can reclaim. And reinvent, like right now, like we can just make it different, which is why I was modernizing a little bit so mm-hmm. people wouldn't complain and say, like, well, this isn't how my grandma made it because I didn't want it to cook like your grandma. Like, I wanted to do something different, you know. <laughs> I wanted to try to, to just modernize it because that's just a better path, you know. But intention I think the intention is the important part, you know, and to really think about the product, to think about like what you're putting into it and what you're representing and what, what is the story that your food is telling you um, or telling the people that you're serving it to, mm-hmm. and, and the how. Health is the most important part, you know. But, again, just finding ways to to feed people is the important piece to it also. So I hope that answers a little. Sorry.
5: (laughs) Hi. Uh, Thank you for your speech, Sean. I'm a student in the International Bachelorette Diploma Program, and I was very inspired by the speech that you gave, and I'm very impressed that so many of you came here because – as a young person, and there aren't many of us here, I think I can count about two, three with myself. I mean, I'm pretty youngish. I'm kidding. But um, it's us, we, the young people and all of you too, who should be caring about this. I mean, we should be taking action. And I, I want to know how Me, as a student, as a person who's continuously surrounded by processed food in the markets, at stores, everywhere. I mean, my mom always says, she's like, if you buy something from a market, it's not healthy for you. It's very, very bad for you. Just know that. And I want to know how I, as a student, and all of us here, can take action now, today. How can we change just in the way that you're changing? Thank you.
2: Yeah. And, and I just really think a lot of community gardens, you know, and a lot of pushing for permaculture and a lot of just like, you know, redefining where you are. And so again, like bringing our own cultures to the forefront, you know, letting everybody have a space at the dinner table, you know, to mm-hmm. be able to share their culture. Um, so I think, you know, it's easy to create a collective, to create a movement. We have so so much social media connection with this, with this era, you know, that's mm-hmm. so easy to pass information around. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really the act of getting together in person and like being together and and like really getting to know each other, and you know, influence the next, the people around us, and the people coming behind us, even at the same time. So there's a lot of things that we can do, but just being aware is the first step.
4: I always say like uh, activism <coughs> starts from the kitchen. So, yeah, like um, it, you always can find a way like to, uh, even like if it's like, w- sometimes we feel like we need diversity, but we can uh, can try with simple recipes uh, mm-hmm. in the beginning.
2: Is that fun? Mm-hmm. You know, there's no rules really, but, you know, we just have to have intention. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Matthias and I'm a, I'm a researcher at the Institute of Social Research and I used to be here at Pio before. Um, thank you so much for an incredibly uh, educational presentation. I just wanted to um, ask quickly, Sean, touching back on the pamphlet that your mom gave you with the uh, Campbell's mushroom soup, uh, among other things, you clearly rediscovered and uncovered a lot of recipes and food knowledge from the past moving from there. And I wondered if you could share some of the anecdotes about the people from the past or the community members
6: from the history of uh, the Lakota a community uh, tribe that had kept and retained the knowledge that you're sharing now.
2: Thank you. yeah I mean some of the traditional recipes that we retained um, we had a lot of bison and we had the prairie turnip which was that braid of, uh, of tubers that you saw in the picture um, and you know we had very simple things very simple soups um, they made these uh, they would because they use every part of the animal the stomach um, there was these recipes where they take the whole stomach bag and make like a like a like a bowl almost out of it but they would fill it with all these ingredients with the different kinds of tubers and meats and herbs and things like that and then they would take really like super hot rocks and then drop them in there, and it would just boil it right right into that, and that, that was one of their methods of cooking. Um, when I was growing up, my grandparents would always be drying out beef, because we didn't have access to bison, but we had a lot of beef, um, so they'd be making a very simple dish called bapa, which was just basically dried beef, and then they would pound that into just like uh, shards of dried beef and mix it with a, a berry called chokecherry that was natural to our area, and we just had this this kind of high-protein, high-vitamin um, energy food called wasna. And and it was used for ceremonies, but it was also just used if you're out and about. It would just give you some some good and en- some good clean energy, you know? And it's just for I feel lucky because this work I've been doing this um you know, officially since 2014, but it's taken me all over the United States. I've been to pretty much almost every single state. Up, We just came from Alaska. We've been up in Canada. We've been down in Mexico. There's indigenous peoples all over North America, and there's so much amazing food stories that I have retained, you know. Um, and there's just it's so much, you know, and which is why I've been working on this next cookbook, which is showcasing that diversity of Mexico through Alaska, because there's just so much that you barely comprehend. It's going to be hard to squeeze it into a book, but at least it'll be a starting point, you know. And so I hopefully people in North America start to see that and hopefully we can do these kinds of books all over the place, you know, to really celebrate and preserve and to just showcase the importance of global indigenous knowledge when it comes to it.
3: Thank you. There was a question there?
2: <clears throat> so, uh, this may have been the juiciest
8: and most delicious priyotaka I've been to, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not dry. So, thank you very much. I really appreciate uh the movement that you have started. Uh, So there goes the eagle quality (laughs) to see bigger than just uh, the restaurant. Um, I was wondering if you could share with us any sort of uh, stories, mythology, or rituals with regards to gratitude for the food or for the hunt with the buffalo or um, rituals uh, for the corn. If there's any personal story or uh, mythology you would like to share with us
6: right now. Sure.
2: Um, obviously because of the diversity, there's a lot of tribes out there, and there's so much corn culture, but there's so much respect that went into it. Um, and there's, there's a book out there called Buffalo Bird Woman's Garden, and Buffalo Bird Woman is the name of the woman. She's a Hadatsa woman, um, which is a tribe in what is today North Dakota, and it chronicles her perception of growing up an indigenous farmer um, in the Great Plains in the United States area. Um, and it's really unique because it's a, an indigenous perspective of agriculture. And she's growing the same things that Mayans were growing you know, centuries before her. So corns and beans and squash and sunflowers. They didn't have chilies because it was too far north. People in the north don't like spice for some reason. I don't know why. But... <laughs> but... Um, Um, It's a really cool book, but it's also unique because it's coming from an indigenous perspective, you know. And growing up Lakota, there's all sorts of ceremonies that are still alive. We've been able to retain a lot of our ceremonies and a lot of our mythology. Um, And, you know, the bison hunt was huge. Uh, A lot of respect went into it because they would do a lot of ceremony before the hunt. And then during the hunt, there was a lot of praying. And they would always, like, single out. There would be one animal that would stand stand and, and basically give themselves up. And they would harvest that one, you know. Um so, there' was just all these little things, and there would be a big celebration, of course, when it comes back and there's just so many different ceremonies of corn because of the all the various cultures from the northeast to the southwest to deep in Mexico and beyond you know, and there's just so much of that you know it's just so amazing, like what has been retained, and it's also so disheartening to understand that so much of has it been lost at the same time, you know, which is why it's important for us to to preserve what's left and to and to keep that, you know, and to celebrate that. And I try not to touch too much of the ceremonial foods or ceremonial recipes, because those have very special meanings, you know, which is why it was easier for me to, again, modernize some of these foods moving forward, but using just indigenous ingredients, um, because I didn't want to mess with people's ceremonies. I didn't want to think I was um, commercializing them mm-hmm. in any way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's important to respect that. And um, it's fun. There's so much, there's so many stories out there. Um, just in Alaska, like we just came across so much and it's it's just so amazing you know so but again it's like I'm just curious I want to learn all of this about from these cultures all around the world you know and it's been really amazing to be in some global indigenous conferences sometimes to hear all these stories and all the commonalities that we have as indigenous peoples everywhere and all of this all of this deep respect we have to our foods and to our lands and to our cultures and again same struggles all over the place when it comes down Mm -hmm. to it
3: Hmm. Thank you very much. I realize there are more people who have questions, but we also want to taste the food, oh, which sure. now we, uh, we're very uh, keen uh, to have. I uh, thank you both for uh, a very inspiring conversation. And last but not least, I want to introduce Nancy Bunt, who is basically the reason for why we uh, managed to uh, have this event. And she's a photographer, uh, originally from Minneapolis, and has been in Norway now for 30 years. And her main aim with her work is to bring the U.S. to Norway, as well as Norway to the U.S. So the final words are for you. Thank you.
8: And, And thank you, Sean, for being willing to do this here. I wanted to bring Sean to all of you. Uh, I've known Sean for about seven years. I first heard him on the uh, National Public Radio in Minneapolis about the time he was sort of starting things off, before he had a restaurant, before he written a book, anything. And I heard him talk about the issues he was involved with, and I called him up the next day. I said, we, you have to do a book. I want to do the book with you, and let's just do this. And um, we've become friends, lucky for me, And I've been interested in these kind of issues and in food and in the introduction of food culture between people as a way of making peace and of understanding each other for probably my whole life. Um, And I did get to work on Sean's book. So Priyo is one of my clients. So I came to them and said... What do you think? Should we have uh, Sean come and talk here? Does it make sense? And we soon saw that it made more sense than I even imagined. Once or twice a year, I'm back in Minneapolis, and I've been able to photograph Sean in this journey over and over and over, the food, or bring him into the forest and say, what if? What have you found here? What's this? What's that? And, and make more pictures of him. I really believe in this uh, movement. I believe in the whole thing of using food as a way for people to connect, and Sean's doing it in a wonderful way and actually it made sense to start in Minnesota where people are I think a little open to understanding Native culture because um, <laughs> because Minnesota has been settled by so many Norwegians and we're kind of nice there and um, I mean I grew up being surrounded by Native Americans and Norwegian Americans actually So, so talking here really makes some sense too I will say that uh, I'm really here to introduce the snacks that we're going to have next. But one of the ingredients in the snacks, I've been living in the same house for 24 years in Nessod, and Sean found them in my backyard. I've never seen them before. (laughs) So now I know where to get it.
2: They're not crickets.
8: (laughs) No, not crickets. (laughs) It's the the sorrel. (laughs) What's sorrel in Norwegian? Someone tell me. (laughs) What? No, no, it's a leaf. It's a sour leaf. Is it Not crickets. <laughs> yeah, not crickets. Okay, so here's, here's what, and, and uh, Sean was one of the first books I did, and I've, now I've done 20 cookbooks. And I want to work more with this movement, so if any of you want to help me, you come and find me. Okay. So um, the, the snack has a lot of wonderful things in it. I had, um, I've helped harvest us. Uh, wild rice on native, on native lakes in Minnesota. And I did it before Sean was born. You didn't know that. So uh, we start with uh, wild rice harvested by Native Americans in Minnesota. And on top of that is squash baked with um, ground dried sumac, fresh corn cut off the cob, wild Norwegian blueberries, wild forage sorrel from my backyard, sage leaf, Pumpkin seeds that have been cooked with the wild rice because Sean taught us that they plump up and get soft and wonderful. Sunflower seed sprouts, edible flowers, and a dressing of maple syrup and apple cider vinegar. So if you don't like that, you're nuts. But to go with that, we're having something to drink that I uh, found in Sean's cookbook, and actually all of this is inspired by his cookbook. Wild raspberry leaves, also from Nesoden, and canes, just picked today, this morning, made into a tea, cold tea, with honey. And you won't believe how good that is. Okay, that's what we're having. Enjoy it, and come and talk to us all while we're <coughs>